Hello and welcome to episode 1683 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Raleigh of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. A lot has happened since we last spoke. The Super League seemingly came and went just in the span of a few days. Hadn't heard of the Super League last time we spoke, and now I guess I never needed to hear it necessarily. I felt like I had just about figured out what it was, and now maybe that effort was wasted. So, like, for a person, you know, not me, who doesn't understand what the Super League was and maybe was, uh, you know, sprawled out on her couch uh, recovering <laughs> from her second COVID dose, like, but again, not me, just like a hypothetical right. person who meets that description. Is this like a thing that we need to know about from a baseball perspective? No, although I was anticipating some emails and uh, I think it came and went if it has, in fact, gone so quickly that there wasn't even time for people to send us hypotheticals about <laughs> what would happen if the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers and the Cubs decided to split up and form their own super MLB league. But from what I can glean, MLB basically already is a super league, more or less. The structure is uh, kind of what the super league was going for in a lot of ways. But no, it does not seem like this is incredibly relevant to Effectively Wild right now. And uh, I think there are probably better places and better podcasts for super league coverage if you're interested in that. Can I note that the Ingenuity helicopter had its first successful powered controlled flight on another planet? Yeah, as long as we're talking about non-baseball news, we might as well talk about the helicopter on Mars. Yeah, I was excited about that too. It got pushed back a couple times and then it happened. It achieved liftoff in that thin atmosphere. I am emotionally invested in the little helicopter. I'm yeah. worried I'm worried about the little helicopter. I just want it to like, you know, do well and realize its goals and be able mm-hmm. to look back on its time on Mars and say I accomplished what I set out to do and you know, that's all any of us are really up to. Um, but we're not all cute little helicopters, so I'm more invested in the helicopter than some other things. It is very cute. Yeah. And of course, our uh, baseball friend and former guest, Shannon Towie at NASA JPL, she is uh, obviously invested in that too. And so via her, I am even more invested in it. But yes, that lasted longer and succeeded more than the Super League (laughs) seems to have done. But uh, there is a lot of actual baseball news that we can get to today. I've just kind of got a, a grab bag of banter and news and email responses here. So we're recording on Tuesday afternoon. We weren't able to record until now, but probably not too late to spare a moment to talk about the Padres Dodgers series this weekend because that was wild and wonderful. It totally lived up to the hype. Like at some point, there is going to be a boring Padres Dodgers game. There's just going to be like a nine nothing blowout, or it's just going to be slow and bad and unexciting. These two teams cannot play amazing games 19 times a year or more if they meet in the playoffs. But this weekend, this past weekend, totally lived up to the billing. And there's a four game Padres Dodgers series that is about to start in LA this week. So we don't have to wait long for the next act. It would be quite a thing if we came to realize that you you really can sort of store up your best performances and your most compelling baseball performances and then deploy them as you need to, right? <laughs> so you could, you know, it, it would be quite a, a skill if you could say, well, I know in advance that I have X number of very good games and mm-hmm. I know that my uh, teammates have Y number of very good games. And so we are going to look at the calendar and we are going to use our, our very best 
best games for the division rivalries that mean the most, right? Because these games have very significant impact on yeah. both teams, playoff odds, you know, kind of generally, but obviously with respect to the division in particular. And, you know, like they, they could probably get by on like 75% against... I don't know, a less good team in the NL. <laughs> the Rockies. The Rockies. Well, well, you know, you picked them, not me. So um, so it would be very cool if they could say, we, uh, you know, we can we can run at like 75% strength uh, against Colorado, but we're going to be all systems go against uh, against LA or against San Diego. And it was it was quite it was just quite fun. It's it goes to show that baseball is better when teams are trying to win because you really have the potential for you know, best against best. And there are plenty of moments in that series that were just really delightful and yeah. super strange. Also super strange. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It really was intense. Everyone was saying this, but it felt like a playoff atmosphere. It's kind of a cliche, but it did, which is really unusual for a first half of April series. Right. I mean, who really ever pays attention to like matchups in baseball especially in the first couple weeks of the season but this one everyone had sort of circled on the calendar and you could tell that like players were getting into it and you know kind of chirping at each other and getting upset about calls that went against them more than you would probably in just your average everyday April game like they feel it too. It's pretty clear. And them feeling it makes it more fun for us to feel it. So yeah. this was just, it was like a great variety of games too. There was just the wild Friday game that was tied up until extras and I'm not going to go on another zombie runner rule rant, but it lasted all the way up until then. And then it ended <laughs> with like Jake Cronenworth is on the mound, who is, uh, you know, more of a two-way player than most players but not actually a two-way player and he's pitching in this game and Joe Musgrove is playing outfield right and uh, just all sorts of weirdness that is happening in this game and I don't know if that speaks well of the Padres bullpen management that Jake Cronenworth was out there in the 12th or just in general like I think this series just exposed just how many pitchers are being used how quickly teams are going through pitchers and yeah maybe that's partly because it's still April but not in entirely and maybe teams are counting on not needing to save them for long extra inning games anymore so they're just sort of burning them and then we end up with position player pitchers in really meaningful games right and so I don't know that that is a great way for a baseball game to end but it was certainly an exciting and entertaining and weird way so you had that but then you also had the great pitcher's duel on Saturday between Kershaw and Darvish and then you had a, another pretty decent pitcher's duel between Bauer and Snell for a while. And then you got a comeback. The Padres came back to take the Sunday game. So it was a little bit of everything. And the atmosphere was great. So, yeah, just give me several more series like that, please. Yeah, I think that if we can dial those up for the rest of the year, it would be fine. I don't think that anyone would would mind if we subbed in a couple more of those games in the place of either of these teams playing against, say, the Rockies. You know, candidly, I don't think the Rockies would mind either. It's not like they're, you know, hankering to to play either of those teams. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was great fun. There was a moment... <laughs> 
there was just, you know, I, I continue to have great sympathy for your displeasure with the, the ghost runner rule. And I continue to share everyone's sort of consternation about the way that we are burning through pictures and just the, you know, the kind of lackluster feeling you can have when you get a position player pitching in an important moment. But it is delightful when you end up with a position player pitching to a pitcher with another pitcher in the outfield. That is like, that's, that's good. That's good stuff. That's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. I don't want to risk Musgrove because uh, he is unbelievable these days and he had another 13 strikeout start. So, you know, don't want to jeopardize him by placing him in left field, but it's memorable for sure. And that game was like, a, that was almost a five hour game. Yeah. Of course, it was extra innings. But then even the pitchers' duel games were pretty long, more than three hours, I think, long for the amount of scoring that took place. But in a series like this, I don't really mind if the games are long. If it is a game against the Rockies or something, sorry to keep picking on the Rockies, but hey, they've kind of earned it. But if it's a a somewhat meaningless game or a lower stakes game or just a game that doesn't feature so many stars, then it can drag a bit. But if it's Dodgers-Padres and it's the best of the sport on display, then I kind of want it to last as long as, as it will. Like the longer the better to some degree. There is something very funny about the Padres of all teams where we we joked throughout the offseason that they surely were being allowed extra roster spots for all of the guys <laughs> who they had signed and brought back that they would run out of pitchers to yeah. <laughs> to throw out there against literally David Price but yeah it was yeah. it was a good time. That's fun too. I love that David Price's career has come full circle and he's just late inning reliever David Price the way that he was as a rookie. And I kind of said this almost jokingly when we talked about Musgrove's no hitter and saying that maybe he would turn out to be one of the best uh, one or two starters that they traded for over this offseason instead of the third best. But I think in my mind, he has already leapfrogged Blake Snell. I, I don't know if I'm getting too over-exuberant about how good Musgrove has been, but anyone who was thinking that Blake Snell didn't last long in games because the Rays have a quick hook, I mean, yes, that is true, but also he has not gone deeper than five innings in any of his four starts for the Padres yet, and yeah, I know it's April April. and teams are having short leashes and everything, but he just nibbles. I mean, he nibbles successfully, but he just does not throw a lot of pitches in the strike zone. He relies on chases and he gets a lot of chases, but when he doesn't get quite enough chases, the pitches really pile up and he doesn't throw a ton of them and doesn't do all that well third time through the order and beyond. Not that he ever gets beyond. So again, like he's certainly valuable for the five innings that he's out there, but I just don't know if anyone uh, drafted him for their fantasy teams thinking, oh, he's going to be innings eater Blake Snell now that he's free of Tampa Bay. I don't think that's going to happen. It is one of the perhaps unfortunate side effects of decisions like that getting framed so so strongly within like a strict a strict interpretation of analytic scripture, right? Because then when a guy doesn't go more than five, you know, I think there is an impulse to be like, see, the analytics were right all along, and it's yeah. you know, I don't know how productive that is, or like I'm sure Blake Snell wants to go deeper too, and like you said, it is April, so we'll kind of see where he is come you know June or July and how long he's going. But yes, it it did not escape my notice either. I was like, but Blake, but he, he still has that weird accent that isn't 
for where we're from. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm not yeah. going to give him a hard time. He's he's lived a life. He's He's been here and there. He's known different people than I've known. So who knows? Who knows what happened that, you know, inspired that that accent. But I remain flummoxed by it. That's not the Me point too. of this. But I just I'm like. Mm. I mean this more to laud Musgrove than to denigrate yes. Snell. Yes, yes, of Musgrove course. has been great. <laughs> and like great to the point that I now have a I have a newly formed understanding of him. My my prior has yeah. been updated. Mm-hmm. So good job, uh, good job, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that Mookie catch on the Tommy Pham oh liner to the walk-off catch on Saturday was just, that was incredible. I think I may have yelped <laughs> slightly, like I had no rooting interest in this game or the series, but that was just so exciting. And then he comes up with the chest-pounding signature moment of the yeah. season so far. That was awesome. He's just like, he's the best at kind of taking over a game, it feels like. You know, he's he's not Trout, but it just feels like there are games where he is everywhere and he is contributing in every possible way. And it's just so much fun. And a walk-off catch, that was incredible. It was incredible. And and sort of nicely vindicating because he made he made a rare error mm-hmm. in the first game of that series. And I, I looked I looked around as if cats and dogs would be living together because he's <laughs> usually not only spectacular but just so sure in the field um but yeah that catch was really i just want to watch them play f- forever yeah can we like too. super I mean, league padres dodgers only yeah but then i'm gonna have to learn what super league is <laughs> yeah no it's not good i don't but... want to learn i don't want to b- learn more about super league i'd like to know <laughs> less than i know about nfts yeah, that's another thing that I'm hoping that we will all be able to forget about <laughs> fairly soon, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll find out, I guess. I don't know. Maybe the scarcity is good. Maybe it's good that they don't play each other every day so that we can appreciate it when they do and we can realize that it is different from regular baseball. But yeah, that play, that was one where the replay actually enhanced my appreciation of the play because it was great in real time. But then when you saw it on the replay, there was just like the slimmest sliver of leather that came between the ground and the ball and it was a a great call like he didn't trap it and fake it or anything he legitimately caught it but it was so close to not being a catch that it made it even more special so you know for a moment there I forgot that it wasn't like game seven of the world series it was just a game in mid-April but it had that feeling I thought I was like oh he he trapped it like he didn't catch that Mm -hmm. and then there was the oh my god (laughs) you know like a slow motion sneeze yeah anyway so much talent on display in that series and it was nice to see Fernando Tatis Jr. make his return and immediately hit a home run in the Friday game still semi-concerned about his shoulder but he helped assuage those concerns by homering right off the bat so to speak so as we were just saying I think everyone has sort of turned on position players pitching and Emma Bachelary just wrote about it and I've seen other people tweeting about it we're all just sick of it because it's so common and especially now when you've got these 13 14 man bullpens it's like there's really no excuse like especially when we're playing seven inning double headers and we're ending extra inning games early like you should not run out of pitchers and have to use a position player so we're all over it except (laughs) for when the position player pitcher is Williams Estadio. So that came before the (laughs) wild ending to the Friday Padres-Dodgers game. But uh, I was just sort of sitting there. I wasn't watching that game at the time. 
and <laughs> my alert system works. It's like, you know, when you get like the test of the emergency alert system, yes. it's like, okay, if there's a disaster, I'm prepared. I will know. I'll be able to protect myself. That's what happened here because I got G-chats from you. I got G-chats from producer Dylan. I got DMs. The Facebook group had about 10 different threads about it. William Testadio was pitching. And not only was he pitching, but Shohei Otani was due up fourth in that inning because the Twins were facing the Angels. And I barely switched over in time to see because Williams was so efficient. Right. He got a one, two, three, seven pitch inning, just mowed them down. So barely got to appreciate it in the moment. But of course, he he showed off a Darvish-esque velocity differential. I mean, there was like a, a 30 mile per hour plus difference between his slow ball, which uh, didn't even register on StatCast, I think, <laughs> and his 73 mile per hour heat. So he threw a, what was it, a 46 mile per hour pitch in there for a called strike, I think. So he made quick work of the Angels and Otani was left on deck. So I did not get to see the confrontation of my two faves. And I don't know whether I'm disappointed or relieved. I would have had a real existential crisis there trying to figure out who I was rooting for in that plate appearance. Well, I felt bad rooting against him. I mean, I wanted him to fail a little bit so that we could get the the matchup between him and Otani. Although, Mm -hmm. as I tweeted, I'm worried that that would have created a singularity (laughs) that might have swallowed the podcast hole and then we just would have to stop doing it. But Ben, I'm optimistic on your behalf that you will get to see some version of this again because as Astadio himself announced on his Instagram, I am officially (laughs) announcing my candidacy for the 2021 American League Cy Young. You just picked the best guys to be enamored with and i i marveled it is a you should you should join like a a scouting department but you you're just like the good vibe scout you know you're you're there to find the good hanks right yeah no they they've both been their best selves this season both uh well on the field in terms of talent also on the field in terms of gifability and just being a whole lot of fun so yeah we're recording a few hours before Shohei returns to the mound so that will dictate my mood for the next uh, day or so depending on how Very that goes <laughs> but I think ultimately I'm I'm semi-relieved that they didn't face each other I think the previous effectively wild singularity was when Rich Hill pitched to Astadio who was yes. catching so you had a Hill Astadio battery which is about as effectively wild as a gets. In this case, I think if it had come down to it, I probably would have been rooting for Shohei just because I don't think Williams failing as a pitcher actually reflects poorly on him in any way. No one's going to be like evaluating him based on his pitching stats, whereas people will evaluate Shohei Otani based on his hitting stats. So just in terms of like significance and career prospects and evaluating their season and all, I probably would have had more riding on Otani being the victor in that plate appearance, but I would have been conflicted about any outcome. I think, too, that, you know, Astadio has proven himself to be the sort of person who, you know, he doesn't seem to take himself overly seriously. And so I think that if he had, like, you know, if he had left one middle middle to Otani and Otani had hit it five miles, then Astadio would have laughed and kind of looked sheepish and then, mm-hmm. you know, gone about his day. And it wouldn't have it wouldn't have altered his perception of himself. And as you said, it wouldn't change our perception of him because that's not his job. He's just there. He's just trying to be a good helper, right? Like right. he's trying to 
to spare other members of his team whose arms the Twins do need from having to throw unnecessary pitches. So he's already playing with house money. And then, you know, if he gives up a home run or a hit, you're like, yeah, it's just, oh, Astadio, you're out there <laughs> doing your best. And we would have all laughed and and sounded like, you know, characters from a 30s movie. Oh, what mm-hmm. And so I think that it would have been a good outcome for Otani to get a hit, but maybe we're just, it's nice to be left wanting more. Although, Ben, I'm going to object to the idea that Astadio was the only good position player pitching that we saw this week, because while there were some excesses in position player pitching, to have your mean Mercedes pitch, also <laughs> a good thing. Yeah, I can't dispute that. He has been one of the best stories of the season in more than one way as well. I'm almost surprised that like he's not too good now to be a position player pitcher. It's yeah. like teams don't generally use like star hitters anymore as pitchers, like the days of uh, Jose Canseco throwing his knuckleball out there and hurting himself are kind of over. I, I mean, Cronenworth is a, a good hitter, of course, but he also has a pitching background, so maybe that sets him apart a little bit but for the most part you don't really get like great players and great hitters putting themselves at risk on the mound and no one would have included your mean mercedes in the ranks of star players or great hitters three weeks ago but the man is batting 404 yeah. with a 684 slugging percentage as we speak so he has uh, suddenly become a pretty integral part of this white Sox offense which is lacking Loy jimenez but hasn't really missed a beat because your mean has more than stepped up to take his place so yeah almost surprised that they let him go out there in the middle of this hot streak but that gave us uh, another position player pitching highlight i love very much that he has a 432 babip right now that's delightful (laughs) that's a that is a fun stat fact and they're really going here yeah so while we were all marveling at padres and dodgers there was also another great rivalry that was playing out in the bronx yankees race and man That didn't go so well for the Yankees, and Yankees fans are revolting, and I'm not commenting on (laughs) Yankees fans and their quality as uh, people or fans. I just mean that they are in open revolt, and on Friday, they were throwing baseballs on the field and making their displeasure felt, and that was before two more losses to the race. So the Yankees, as we speak, again, 5-10, and worst record in the American League. And in New York, which is not known for patience with its sports teams or taking the long view, and which I can say as a New Yorker and a former Yankee fan, they are quite worried about their team and, at least on Twitter, are calling for various people's heads. So we talked last time, I wrote last week about the incredible longevity of Brian Cashman. And I almost feel like I jinxed him because uh, suddenly people are calling for Cashman to be fired, not for the first time, and not that that is about to happen. But they are really up in arms about this team and its slow start. Here are some teams that have a better offense than the New York Yankees. The Seattle Mariners, the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Baltimore Orioles, the San Francisco Giants, the Texas Rangers, the only teams that have a worse offense by our version of war. Uh, And again, not the only way that we could slice this particular pie, but the way I'm doing it right now are the Colorado Rockies and the Detroit Tigers. We, we will not talk about how Akil Badu has kind of cooled off because that's that would be unbecoming and we're still rooting for him. But yes, they are they are 22nd by WRC plus 
They are 28th by offensive war. And, you know, I don't think that the pitching has gone especially better for them. (laughs) No. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the offense has not produced makes me more optimistic about the Yankees. Not that, like, I'm in the camp of people who are going to write off a team that we all thought was great after 15 games in mid-April. This is really a blip in the long run, most likely. And we saw that with, like, you know, the A losing their first six games and then they just reel off a really long winning streak and suddenly you forget that 0-6 start to the season or same thing with uh, the Red Sox which you know people follow the Red Sox much like they follow the Yankees and one thing Cashman said to me he repeated that saying about how in New York it's you know not 162 game season it's 162 one game seasons again kind of a cliche but also kind of true and i think you can forget those things like the red sox you know they dropped their first series to baltimore and they looked bad and people were writing columns about the red sox disaster and then suddenly they won a bunch of games in a row and so it would not surprise me at all if the Yankees reeled off a a 10-game winning streak of their own or just, you know, won like everyone expected them to from here on out and everyone forgot about this start, which is not to say that there are not some causes for concern here. Like, it depends how you look at it. Like, if you look at it the way that the playoff odds look at it, then they have taken a hit, a Mm -hmm. measurable hit, but not a hit that is probably commensurate (laughs) with the level of uh, panic and outrage that is going on in Yankees Nation now. But according to the Fangrass playoff odds, again, before Tuesday's game, they are down 11 percentage points in playoff odds. They are down 15 percentage points in division odds, and they are down 2.7 percentage points in World Series odds. And they are second to the Astros, who have also started semi-slow, but have uh, been behind teams that are playing better. The Astros have taken greater hits to their playoff odds in all three of those categories, but after them, it's the Yankees. So there's uh, obviously a hit here, and it's a division where you have the Rays, who were expected to give them a, a run for their money, and the Red Sox are no slouches, and Toronto too. So yeah, you don't want to see this, but The fact that it's only been 15 games, that we thought this was a good team, that these are the same players who were on the team three weeks ago when we thought it was a great team, and the fact that they haven't hit, which, like, I have no doubt that the Yankees are going to hit. (laughs) Like, you could have doubts about the pitching, but the offense just is not really doubtable, I don't think, especially as long as guys aren't injured, which isn't really the case thus far. And I should say, the uh, issue has come in the rotation, not the bullpen, which mm-hmm. is tops in the American League um, by war and has a has a very respectable 276 FIP. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the, the starters have struggled. They have struggled. But I agree. I think that this is the sort of thing that is going to sort itself out in fairly short order. Um, they will get some offensive reinforcements as guys come back from injury. So they have that going for them. And also, they're a good baseball team who's just had a, a, a lousy start. So I think it's going to be fine, but I never like to enjoy (laughs) the consternation (laughs) of others because it's unbecoming. And, And yeah, Yankees fans have had it good 
for a long time, but also they're human beings and our experience of our lives is just what we know. And so, you know, this amount of suffering relative to a fan base that has had a longer playoff drought or a longer World Series drought would seem would seem a, a bit of an overreaction. But that's the that's the reality that this fan base knows. And so we're not going to sit here and pass judgment on it. But it is kind of funny. It is a little funny. I mean, like, Throwing baseballs on the field. That's yeah. that's um that is an a quick escalation, I think. Yeah. I think that is perhaps too too quick an escalation. You might look back, Yankees fans, and wish you'd saved that one. Cause like, what if this gets worse? It probably <laughs> won't get worse. And we're here to say that it's probably gonna be fine. Like our understanding of this team, I don't think has fundamentally changed. I don't think when we look at them that we think that there was some great error in the way that we projected them. It's just that they haven't hit so far. And yeah, we looked mm-hmm. at their rotation in the early going uh, coming into the season and thought, well, you know, it's uh, it's probably not the best thing that they're starting depth behind Cole is so shallow or at least so yeah. uncertain. But like, you know, I don't think that we have a had a bad understanding of how the Yankees were going to hit. They have a bunch of very good competent hitters. But if it does get worse, you've already used the baseball bit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a dramatic but, bit. Like that's a pretty. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that they show replays of that because it's like streaking. They don't want to encourage you to do that. So no. mid-April is early to <laughs> to break out the throwing baseballs at the field tactic. Yeah, I mean, if they now improve, then Yankees fans can credit themselves with uh, motivating the team or intimidating the team into winning. It won't be Aaron Boone's uh, closed clubhouse doors meeting or just regression to the mean. It'll be that the Yankees fans rose up and reminded the team who they were. But no, I think there was already some acrimony because the Yankees could have perhaps been more aggressive this offseason. They did not blow by the luxury tax, competitive balance tax threshold the way the Dodgers did. And given the risks in the rotation, I know that there were people calling for upgrades there. And that's kind of a continuation of people calling for upgrades at deadlines when Brian Cashman has stood pad and decided not to do that. And so there is a sense that, uh, you know, the old if George were still alive sort of segment of the fan base that uh, forgets that George probably would have traded all of the good young players and there would be aging over the hill veterans and the team probably wouldn't be any better. But They like the aggressiveness of always wanting to have the biggest payroll and being the most aggressive. And when there is not double and triple redundancy at every position, it is unacceptable for the Yankees. So I can see why people came into the season sort of upset about that. And and look, it's been quite a while by Yankee standards since they won a World Series or even won a pennant. So people are impatient. And I know you sympathize as a Mariners fan. I mean, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I think that there is a, a limit to my understanding of their situation, to be sure. Mm-hmm. And and look, if if my alternatives were being stuck rooting for the Jets, I might freak out too. I also think that there's something to be said for the fact that you know people are finding their way to the back to the ballpark for the first time in a long time. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're all having like pent up feeling. And I think we're all being caught kind of unawares by moments when we feel very emotional about re-entering the world um, in something resembling the way that we used to. And so um, I I can appreciate how perhaps you, you know, you, you burn too hot too fast. <laughs> yeah. Because you're like, I am so excited. But also I think that people should 
should remember that we're only going to talk about the ball bit the one time. So now you have to come up with a different thing. You have to come Mm -hmm. up with something else. Yeah, I don't know if people need to recalibrate their feeling for the season and how long it is after the 60-game season because if you started 5-10 and 10 last year, that would be a big deal. If you start 5-10 and 10 this year, it's not good, but it's hardly a killer, and I don't know that the Yankees will be fine. I would assume that the Yankees from this day forward will probably play more or less as they were expected to play, and will this hole that they have dug themselves uh, impair them at the end of the season? I don't know. It's possible that it could, but they would not be the first team to rebound from a start like this. And really, every good team has a stretch like this. It just so happens that they had it at the very start of the season when it is incredibly conspicuous. But that doesn't mean that they will continue to play that well. And uh, perhaps when we look back, it will seem like they just got it out of the way early. So I think that probably there would have been a reaction mostly like this in any season. So I don't know that it's coming after the 60-game season or it's just the Yankees and New York and 5-10 and 10 is not good for a team with high expectations. But I expect that the Yankees will mostly be fine and they will be without Jay Bruce, who retired and now will no longer be around to remind you that you are older than he is. <sighs> I am victorious. Yeah. yeah, and then like played a little bit. <laughs> yeah. He retired and then he like played a little bit. Yep. I don't really have much more to say about Jay Bruce other than he had a nice little career and I hope that he enjoys his retirement and his time with his family and mm-hmm. that uh, I never have to think about how old I am or he is ever again. Yeah. I do think that the psychological effect of of sort of a bad stretch in the early going is so interesting because we don't have any other like good baseball to sort of fall back on and remind ourselves like oh yes i have recently seen this team behave and perform the way i expected them to when all you have is a five and ten record and like this feeling of suck then Mm -hmm. you don't you can't really put it in its proper context whereas you know if you have like a kind of crummy stretch in july it doesn't bother you as much if the team's been good prior to that because you're like yeah they're you know they're getting tired going into the break and they'll be fine Mm -hmm. on the other side and we do a bad job remembering how other things feel (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and usually effectively wild is an oasis from these overreactions i like to think that uh, we will not be declaring anyone done after a couple weeks and we will not be declaring anyone made after a couple weeks either unless it's the dodgers maybe (laughs) but we declared them made before the season started so usually we don't uh, do a lot of overreactions or even reactions to the overreactions because it's probably not all that much fun to just hear us say small sample and it's April and nothing counts and don't even look at the standings but there is some truth to that especially when it's a team like the Yankees so it's really just the vehemence of the reaction and I'm sort of inside the New York bubble and have maybe been exposed to a little more of it because of that and it's so strong that I want to reassure people or diffuse the situation. And I'm sure that this podcast will have accomplished that. <laughs> so there you go, Yankees fans. Don't worry. Yeah, or at least if you worry, just just uh, don't throw don't throw stuff on the field. Because other yeah. people have to go pick up that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like don't don't do that. Don't don't call for Brian Cashman to lose his job after 15 games. That's that's <laughs> silly. I think we can say that that's silly without without discounting anyone's sort of experience of the last couple weeks and what it must feel like to watch your favorite team lose more than you expect them to. Mm -hmm. Don't 
see, think about how much more you'll appreciate it when they get really hot and are good again. You'll be like, ah, oh, right. right. Remember yeah. this team that I was pretty confident would be good and it turns out is? Well, yeah. And if you had faith in them all along, then you can fully enjoy that hot streak and you won't have to feel like a right. bandwagon fan who lost faith and then uh, got back on board. So speaking of fast starts, there was one that was stopped right after we talked about it. Tim LaCastro got yeah. caught stealing <laughs> right after he broke the record, broke Tim Raines' record, had 29 steals without being caught to start his career. The streak was snapped at 29, and his uh, attempt at a 30th was unsuccessful. And to add injury to insult, he also jammed his finger on the attempt and went on the injured list. So not only did the streak get snapped, but he is now out of action for a little while. So we wondered how long it would last and would it make him any less likely to go. And I guess it didn't, but now it's over. And who knows, maybe it's a relief to Tim Castro that he is no longer flawless and there is no longer any expectation of perfection. Yeah, you're diminished like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But you know who is perfect? Someone else who stole a base on Sunday. And I just wanted to salute it because we don't get a whole lot of opportunities to praise his latter-day performance. But you know who has a better stolen base success rate than Tim LoCastro dating back to 2016? Albert Pujols does. <laughs> Albert Pujols is a perfect base dealer since 2016. He has swiped 12 bags. He has not been caught. I think he's perfect in his last 13 attempts dating back to 2015. He is one of four players, I believe, who have made at least 10 attempts and have not been caught over that span. Kevin Biggio, Albert Pujols, Lane Adams, and Leody Tavares. Saw that stat in the Baseball Reference Stathead daily email, and Albert Pujols is not like those other players, or really like any other player in the majors now, because he is just the slowest that there is. And I don't mean to insult him, it's just the facts. We all see the sprint speed leaderboard, and he is perennially toward or at the bottom of it. And not just at the bottom, but at the bottom by a lot. He's on his own ultra-slow island, one full foot per second behind Yadier Molina, who isn't exactly a speed demon himself. And yet, when he goes, which is a rare occurrence, but not an unheard of occurrence, he makes it. And he does it just with wiles, with his veteran smarts. So he did this in a game against the Rangers on Sunday. He stole third without even drawing a throw. I think he just stole it on the pitcher. He picks his spots. No one is uh, paying very close attention to him or holding him close. And why would they? Because he's Albert Pujols, slowest position player in baseball. And yet, every now and then, he still has those instincts, you know, doesn't really have the reaction time, the, the bat speed that he once did. But he definitely has the veteran experience. He has more of that than ever. And every now and then he deploys it to steal a bag. And I always get a kick out of it. So he's actually the oldest player to steal a base since Ichiro. And even in Ichiro's last gasp 2018, he still had a slightly above average sprint speed. I just, I appreciate that he appreciates the value of being wily in this yeah. way, right? Because... Yeah, like a pitcher isn't going to worry about Albert Pujols. Why would Albert Pujols run? And he doesn't he doesn't overuse his wiliness, right? He's no. selective in his wiles. And so I think that it's delightful because uh, 
you know, and there's always kind of a, a look. <laughs> there's always kind of a look on the face of the pitcher. It's one of two things. They're either totally flabbergasted that it worked or they're kind of secretly delighted. They're like, yeah, don't do that again. But also that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're Pujols, you, you have to be perfect. Like you better make it because otherwise it's like, why are you running, dude? Like yeah. you're the slowest player there is. So if you were getting caught, then that would be a situation where you might want to sit him down and say, Albert, you don't have the wheels that you used to but because he makes it all the time what can you say <laughs> he, he finds the right times to do it yeah it's it's pretty delightful <laughs> <laughs> all right so i've got a few emails here to read in response to things that we talked about recently so this is an email from Adam Spillane, and he is responding to our multiple conversations recently about player switcheroos, players uh, masquerading as other players secretly, perhaps better players substituting for less good players to get in a bat that they are not entitled to. We talked about whether this has ever happened, whether it would be feasible, and Adam writes in to say, I spent 10 seasons, 2009 to 2018, as a broadcaster in the Rockies organization in the Pioneer League, and I can tell you we pulled off the player switcheroo multiple times, though never with malicious intent to cheat the game. It was always done because a pitcher who was supposed to pitch was left off the lineup card. I don't remember all of them, but here are the two most memorable. In 2009, Clint Tilford was supposed to be the second pitcher of a piggyback, but he was left off the lineup card. So he was given Billy Vopinek's number 12 jersey, and he starts warming up. I look down to the bullpen and see number 12 warming up, but it was obviously Tilford because the pitcher's socks were pulled up, a Tilford staple. I text down to the dugout, and they tell me to make sure Vopinek is announced. So our PA announcer announced Vopinek into the game, and that's what was put into the box score until I had it changed a few days later. So secret Clint Tilford appearance. And then the second instance, in 2014, we put Garrett Schlecht's jersey on Tony Bryant, and he went six up, six down in the seventh and eighth innings on our way to a 2 nothing win. The best parts of this were that Schlecht was a 6-2 lefty, while Bryant was a 6-7 righty. And our number two hitter was Michael Kadire, who drove in both runs that night. The Pioneer League was really something. So the switcheroo has happened in the low minors, at least, although not really for the reasons that we were talking about. No, not exactly. When you're, I, I do wonder why they had so many procedural errors. Though. Like you probably <laughs> should really look at that. Yeah, it's it's the minor leagues for the lineup card makers too, I guess. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a development league for everybody. That's delightful, although it is it is quite different, I think, both in its intent and uh, its cause than than what we were talking about. But I kept thinking about this. I mean, it would be such a rare combination of traits. Because you'd have to have two guys who are basically the same in every discernible way, except that one is a materially better hitter to the point of it being worth it. Because as we discussed, like if you get jammed up in a defensive swap, that could, you know, you could end up giving back the runs that you theoretically just scored and you'd need them to look the same enough that it wouldn't draw attention. And again, I think that the consequences would be pretty severe. So I think there's a reason we haven't seen it because the number of times that we even have it as a potentiality are so limited. But um, I don't think that minor league pitching stuff quite qualifies. But I'm glad that you were able to get your guys in to get the work they needed because really that's what they're there for. They're there to they're there to grow. Yeah, less umpire oversight at that level, fewer recognizable faces that go with names, just less oversight in general, less 
fewer people actually caring <laughs> about which players are actually in the game at any given time. So definitely easier to pull off there. We also got an email from a Patreon supporter named Sivan. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, who says, just to add to the video replay conversation, whenever I've watched a cricket game on TV, the replay umpire's decision is live streamed. The audience sees the video that the umpire sees. Here's the umpire asking the video technician to go back or forth, explains his rationale for a decision, and then at the end tells the umpire on the field to keep or reverse his call. This adds both transparency to the process and keeps the audience engaged with the process instead of bored waiting for the call. Do you think this is feasible in baseball, and do you think it would be an improvement on the current system? I think that having some kind of explanation for the folks in the in the ballpark especially would be useful because I do think that there is often confusion about why a a particular call is either, you know, upheld or overturned and I think that, you know, sometimes the rules like when it's a guy coming off the bag for a hot second um and he gets tagged out, like that's I think pretty comprehensible to your typical fan, but there are some more sort of obscure rules and corner cases that are in the rule book and I think that when it comes to those rather than having fans in the stands not know what's going on at all and rather than leaving the broadcast booth to kind of fumble their way through an explanation which sometimes goes better than at other times it would be nice to have someone there to say like here's what I saw or didn't see and why you know that informed this particular decision that I've made because I do think that the whole idea of being able to see stuff in super slow mo super high res is transparency right you can see pixel by pixel where the ball is and the guy's foot and and so I think that to embrace that spirit a little more fully it would be useful to get an explanation because sometimes you know sometimes what will happen is a a weird rule will get invoked and a a result in the field is confusing to people and then you watch the broadcast and you can see you can see like the folks behind home plate leaning in and talking to one another and you're like they don't know what's going on right now they they have been lost for a moment and the action on the field will sort of snap them back in and they're going to appreciate it but we talked about this before, like this is all made up. All of our rules around this stuff are made up. It's it's not gravity, although gravity is often involved. And so we have to have some amount of faith that like the the made up rules that we have and that we put so much stock in are like sensical and fairly enforced. And I think that you really do risk turning people off even if only temporarily when you don't have a good understanding of why like you your favorite team suddenly doesn't have a runner on second where they did before so yeah i think it would be really useful you know they make uh they make nfl refs explain their decision making Mm -hmm. so and that doesn't always go great it does give you another opportunity to boo so (laughs) so that's exciting potentially um so yeah i don't really see a downside and that's something that was going to happen, right? Pre-pandemic, it was at least it was, being discussed. Yeah. It was in the works that umpires were going to make announcements over the PA system in, in ballparks, and then there was no one to announce anything to. <laughs> but hopefully, and probably I would think that would come back at some point, but this idea from cricket of actually even on the broadcast showing what the replay technician and the umpires, the officials are seeing in real time, that would be great, I think. I I don't expect that to happen, but there's probably no reason why it couldn't happen. And 
it would certainly enhance the entertainment value for me. Like there's some interminable replay reviews where you're just sitting there and you see every angle that's available to the broadcast. And then you're just sitting there and sitting there and wondering what could they possibly be looking at? And sometimes it even seems pretty conclusive and you're wondering, well, why did they not just make the ruling? But you don't know what they're looking at. They may be looking at different angles than are available to the broadcast and so you're just sort of sitting there in the dark and ultimately you you don't really ever get clued in until someone relays the explanation to the booth at some point but even in addition to the empire being transparent when they make the call yeah why not show it on the broadcast i mean i could see why mlp would not want that broadcast i guess but there is precedence in other sports and for entertainment value and for transparency I would want to see that. And I think that it would be good to have the person who's making the decision be the one to like, you know, like a voice on the sky. They come on the Jumbotron and they say, hello, I'm hmm, and I'm here to tell you about hmm. And they explain what's going on because they're the ones making the call. I don't want to put the umpire on the field in the position. Like imagine you're at a you're at a game and you're you root for the home team. And the umpire says that guy was safe on your home team. And you're like, yay, we're going to score. And then the other team is like, no, he was not safe I shall challenge and uh, and then the call is overturned and the umpire made a call that it comports with what the home crowd wants but now the umpire if he has to say upon further review is going to get yelled at and that feels that feels unfair to the umpire because you know he might have been wrong but he at least was doing something that the majority of the people in the ballpark liked and now he's going to get booed so you should have like a you know you make the guy come on he can be in a little MLB polo <laughs> and he can <sighs> I'm really looking forward to having 100% mental clarity after the second shot. <laughs> I think it's been okay. You can leave all yeah. of this in. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was like, again, you know, not me, but like it, if one were a person who like took edibles, it would be like being on the back half of an edible. It wasn't unpleasant. It was just like very foggy. Yeah. And I, I was like, I don't know about words. <laughs> So it was really good yeah. that I wasn't editing. We should we should thank Dylan and, and John for making sure that there were yeah. good words on Fangrass yesterday because I think they would have been more typo prone had they been edited by me. Yeah, when you told me that earlier, I thought that might have made for interesting podcasting if we had <laughs> talked while you were on the back half of edible type mental space. <laughs> I mean, not you, but someone. Someone. But perhaps not. Perhaps it was better to wait a day. <laughs> I think that there would have been a lot of, wait, what? <laughs> That's not good radio. Also got an email from Robert who wrote in about something that I was going to bring up for banter. And Robert had a subject line here, celebrating our personal victories. And he writes, on Monday night in the bottom of the fourth inning of a game between the Phillies and Giants, Gene Segura stepped to the plate looped a ball into left field and stretched a would-be single into a hustle double, narrowly avoiding the tag at second. While the Giants were calling for a replay on the close play, Segura immediately turned toward his own dugout, frantically motioning for the ball to be saved. As he pleaded for someone, anyone, to save the baseball, the Philly broadcast alerted viewers that Segura had just notched his 200th career double. The broadcast cut to the Phillies' dugout where Andrew McCutcheon, another member of the esteemed 200 career doubles fraternity, and others clapped before standing to applaud this milestone. A 200 career doubles graphic was shown on the scoreboard. (laughs) A decent number of fans were shown giving a standing ovation. Segura then tipped his helmet to the crowd multiple times before the broadcast showed the sweeping crowd shot that has become a staple of the milestone celebration moment. 
This all felt like an undue amount of commotion for a 200th career double, so I checked to see where this ranked on the all-time leaderboard. As of this writing, Segura is tied for 1,080th on the all-time <laughs> doubles leaderboard, 62nd all-time among active players, and 7th among active players in this game, <laughs> the game when he got it. This research had me feeling somewhat vindicated in my incredulity, but my wife put this whole situation into a new perspective for me. As I bemoaned the celebration over such a non-event, she said, no, I like it. He should be celebrating. We should all celebrate our wins. Look how much fun everyone is having. So in that spirit, what other seemingly mundane career milestones should we be celebrating as robustly as Segura and the Philly faithful celebrated his move into a 10-way tie for 1,080th place <laughs> in all-time career doubles? This really was. I'll link to the video. It's sort of a surreal sight. Like it, it, it almost seems like satire or something. And and Robert's right. Like McCutcheon and others, like they were clapping on the bench and then they stood up. But it was kind of. It looked like one of those like reluctant standing ovations when it's like you intend to clap, but then other people stand up and right. like, oh, okay, I, I guess we're we're standing. I guess I'll go along with it. But this was. Uh, I can't really recall a less consequential milestone that was celebrated in this fashion. And I don't know. I, I don't begrudge him having a, a good time and, and delighting in his accomplishments, but uh, this probably would not clear the bar <laughs> the bar for me if I were in that spot. I mean, I don't know. If I found myself in that spot, maybe I'd be celebrating every double that way. But this was not the norm. I... <laughs> The first thing that comes to mind for me is like, what if you're a hitter and you are approaching a hits milestone, but then your hit comes against a position player pitching? Like, do you sit there and and commemorate (laughs) it? I mean, I guess if it's a big enough number, you know, if it's like a milestone that we all look around and are like, wow, you have 3,000 hits, then you don't care because it's 3,000 and you're like, look, some of those, some of those were probably BS hits Mm -hmm. in the past and it's fine. I'm at 3,000. There are going to be some that are better struck than others. And we're excited because this is a big round and important number. And so here we are, 3,000. Yeah. And you wouldn't care that like it came against Jake Ronanworth or whatever, just to like pick a recent example or Danny Mendick. As an aside, and here I'm going to go on a a tangent that does have a bit of entendre. So if you are listening with children around, just be aware of that because I don't want to bother anybody. But what would your family have had to accomplish to not change your name if last name if it was Mendick? I think my family would have had to like cure cancer. Anyway, that doesn't yeah. matter. That's neither here nor there. But I do take some comfort in knowing that like I bet Danny Mendick's middle school experience was a little rough at times because of yes. his last name in a way that uh, probably makes him more relatable than your typical baseball player. He was a position player who also pitched in that same game with your men, Mercedes just in case people we're not watching baseball at like nine in the morning whenever that Red Sox uh, White Sox game happened. Anyway, to return to the point at hand, I think that you would feel a little bit sheepish because you're like, this isn't a real pitcher. This is a position player. But you would you would still like note the moment. But mm-hmm. 200 doubles is like, I mean, that's <laughs> 200 more than I have. And yep. I wonder if the if there hadn't been a replay review, do you think that they do? anything around this like if if yeah. play just continues and there wasn't a pause 
Do you think that they say anything or were the Phillies like, oh, we got to put something up because maybe they didn't have the replay feed, but it does suggest that they like had that ready. Like they knew that. That's what I was wondering. Yeah. Like clearly Segura knew about this. He asked for the ball and fine, like be aware of your own milestones and accomplishments. But yeah, was the Phillies like graphic design scoreboard department, were they ready with the 200 career doubles graphic? Like did they have that in the holster and they were like, all right, it's time or did they realize as this was happening, like, oh, this must be meaningful in some way. I guess we better throw something up there so that it's not embarrassing for Gene Segura that no one is cheering him for the 200th career double. That's what I want to know. Yeah, I want to know what the level of preparation here was. I'm trying to think of, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who clapped because I don't know that casual fans, you know, 200 sounds kind of like a lot, maybe like it's a, it's certainly a round number and it's more than mm-hmm. like 100. So yeah. I'm sure that there were a couple of fans there who looked around and they were like, oh, is that a really big number? We should. Right. I would assume it was if we got, they right, the we game gotta, to celebrate it. Yeah. We got to do something about this. I, I didn't come prepared. I don't have a sign. So the least I can do is clap. I don't know. Like we got really excited about Tim LoCastro's like stolen base streak, but right. there was a streak component and it had been yeah. un- it had been undisturbed for so long. It and was so unprecedented. It was unprecedented. Yeah. So that's a different thing. Like a lot of clearly a lot of guys have had two hundred doubles. <laughs> there were more than a thousand above him yeah. on the leaderboard. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think that I think that your first like hit milestone that you pr- of any kind that you probably wanna do is like like your hundredth home run, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to be like. And he now has a hundred home runs. I don't know. That seems like sort of a lot, or maybe it's two mm-hmm. seasons worth if you're like John Carlos Stanton and you're healthy. Yeah, Jay Bruce has more than three hundred home runs, so one hundred isn't that much. Well, anymore. he's very young, Ben. So that's why <laughs> true, he's just true. a young, just a spry. He's mm-hmm. in the prime of his life. He's got nothing but time at home ahead of him, and I'm sure he's going to do projects. He'll probably mm-hmm. build some stuff because he's so. Young and strong and lithe, like young people are. <laughs> yeah. I anyway. think Carlos Santana saved first base. I think he took the first base bag the other day when he had his 1,000th career walk, which, uh, I don't know, you don't tend to think of celebrating walks, really. But, but I like he is, that. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's it's, it's the thing that makes him as good as he is yeah, and, he's a walk and makes machine. him undervalued. And I think he's the fourth active player to have a thousand walks. So it's a lot rarer than 200 doubles. So it's, you know, it's not as active. You don't get to slide into second and celebrate the way that Segura did on his double. But sure, like I'm all for players keeping some memento. I have no problem with that. Like balls are not literally a dime a dozen, but more or less, you know, there's no shortage of baseballs. So by all means, put that in your trophy case and, you know, show your grandchildren your 200th double ball someday. But it just seems like, you know, I I, I don't know that it necessarily merits stopping the game. <laughs> and I think, you know, in Segura's case, like not to, to bring down the mood here, but he is someone who has uh, suffered some hardship and tragedy. I think back in 2014, he lost a, a child yeah. and lost some of his will to play the game yeah. at that point, as, as one would imagine that you would. And he has continued to play and has uh, found some measure of, of joy, it seems, in baseball. And that's great. And 
And uh, if this is part of that uh, healing coping process that he celebrates every little happiness that comes his way, then by all means, uh, do what you have to do, Gene Segura. I, I don't begrudge him that. I guess it's just, you know, if we get to a point where every player is celebrating a 200th career double or equivalent milestones than uh, in an era when we are trying to improve the pace of the game and cut down the game length a little bit, stopping for a minute or two to, you know, take the bow and have the standing ovation and show the scoreboard graphic for an accomplishment that uh, is not all that rare is maybe not something I would want to encourage. I enjoyed it in this case just because it was so weird that it was happening. (laughs) But if it became the standard that we celebrated everything that way, then it would perhaps not be quite as quirky and endearing. Yeah, and it's just a double is, you know, it's the doubles are valuable. Like a double Mm -hmm. is a useful kind of hit. It's better than a single. (laughs) Yep. But it doesn't have sort of the gravitas of a home run. And it doesn't have even the rarity of a triple in today's game, right? Certainly not mm-hmm. far more common to hit yep. a double than to hit a triple. So if you had 200 triples, maybe I would be like, oh, that's that's nice yeah. for you. You're not a lot of... Not a lot of guys with 200 triples, not really any uh, active guys with that many. So mm-hmm. you'd, you'd go, oh, wow, that's so cool. But for a double, it does seem to be, it does seem to be a bit much like, you know, I don't know. It's just not that, it's not that spectacular. I mean, like on the one hand, it's not that spectacular. It is funny that my chat only has 264. <laughs> can, yeah. we, can we take a brief pause to appreciate Mike Trout's stat line for a moment? I don't recall whether he paused the game and whether there was a scoreboard Almost graphic certainly for not. his 200th double, but no, I doubt it. Can we can we talk about Mike Trout's stat line for a second? Sure. Yeah, by the way, there are only eight players who have uh, 200 career triples. See, that, then it's like... A long, long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, like, it's... So I, I just think um, a bit more... A bit more discernment, though I would like to know if there had not been a pause for um, it to get looked at, if they would have done anything or if play Mm -hmm. would have just continued. But Mike Trout is currently hitting 354, 492, 688. He's a 225 WRC plus. He has a 520 BABIP. He is walking 21.3% of the time. He is striking out at a good clip for him, like a, the highest of his career so far. I mean, we will not really say that any of these numbers are likely to sit quite where they are come the end of the year. But, mm-hmm. you know, it turns out that Mike Trout is still really good. Yep, he's still good. Yeah, we're going to have to do a big Mike Trout blowout episode for the big 3-0 in August. It's coming up. We will have to wow, appreciate him. Yeah. Not that we haven't spent, you know, the last uh, eight years or so appreciating him already. Nine years. I'm very comfortable with Mike Trout being younger than I am because that just means that we will get to enjoy him for more years. Right. The active career leader in triples was actually one of the players applauding Gene Segura. Andrew McCutcheon oh. has uh, 49 career triples. Well, that's cool. Him. Yeah. So there were just uh, two more quick accomplishments I wanted to shout out. First, Sean Kazmar Jr. made it back to the big leagues after a very long hiatus, made his major league debut in 2008, played 19 games for the Padres and was in the minor leagues ever since, mostly at AAA. And then just made it all the way back to the big leagues with Atlanta, his first 
MLB appearance since 2008, grounded into a double play in a pinch hit appearance, maybe not the way that he wanted to come back, but still pretty incredible that he stuck it out for so long and made it back. And it's not unprecedented that long a layoff, but it's very rare. I saw Elias said that the last player with a longer gap between MLB games was Ralph Weingarner, who went 13 years and 14 days between pitching appearances for the 1936 Cleveland team and the 1949 St. Louis Browns. So it's been a really long time since anyone else has done this. And there are others, but they usually had some sort of, uh, you know, long gaps like Minnie Mignoso or Satchel Paige or Paul Schreiber, who did it uh, for Brooklyn and the Yankees. Uh, he came back like during World War II when he was coaching for the Yankees and the roster was shorthanded. And so he made some appearances or in Mignoso's or, or Paige's cases, like there was, you know, a promotional element to those appearances. So this is like a legitimate one, you know, no, no funny business going on. And he made it back after a really long layoff. And I was just thinking like how much the game has changed since 2008. Like not that Sean Kazmar has been like Rip Van Winkle and he just woke up suddenly, but if he had like MLB in 2021 is a lot different from MLB in 2008 when it comes to so many things, really just the, the league stats, the way the ball behaves, pitcher usage, shifting, like he's been in AAA, like he knows about shifting, he knows about the ball, it's not news for Sean Kazmar, <laughs> but if he had just suddenly reappeared after this long absence, he would be like, where am I? Yeah. And what happened to the MLB I remember? Yeah, he was not actually asleep like Rip Van Winkle though, no. so he's like, baseball, I know that, Yeah. here to yeah. baseball, but yeah, that is very cool. And Carter Stewart made his NPB debut. Remember oh, Carter Stewart? Yes, I he do. Was, uh, a subject of some discussion on the podcast. This was the eighth overall pick in the 2018 draft. Carter Stewart, right-handed pitcher, and he was drafted by Atlanta. And it was one of those situations where I guess the physical turned up a wrist injury, and so Atlanta lowered its offer to Stewart. And instead of accepting that lower offer, he said, nope, no thanks. And he did not sign with Atlanta. Instead, he went to Japan. And yeah. we talked at the time about whether this might set a precedent, whether other players could follow in Stewart's footsteps. And not everyone will want to do it, but he is proceeding down that path. He plays for Fukuoka and he made his debut. He throws 95, throws a curveball, throws a change. And NPB salaries are not public in the way that MLB salaries are, but they do often get reported. And his deal reportedly was worth around $7 million, which was certainly more than the Braves offered him. And probably, I, I think it was definitely more than some players who were drafted ahead of him even. And so he went over there and, you know, made that money quickly instead of riding the buses and, uh, you know, gets called up to Japan's major leagues in fairly short order. And he will be eligible to sign with an MLB team as a free agent after the 2025 season if he wants to. So if he does want to come to MLB at that point, he'll still be pretty young and could get another big deal. So it's an interesting route. You know, not everyone will want to uproot themselves and yeah. some guys will just get big deals and they'll be happy to sign them and they'll follow the traditional path. But 
you do kind of wonder, especially, you know, when there are fewer draft rounds and the minor leagues getting shrunk and teams getting contracted, whether we will see more players go this route of establishing themselves in a foreign league first and then potentially working their way back here. Yeah, it was an interesting move at the time. I think that, you know, it's not like everyone is going to be kind of game for this, right? This is a, a significant like life move to go live in a, yeah. another country in a place where I am perhaps making a, a faulty assumption here, but my understanding is that Carter Stewart does not speak Japanese fluently. And so, you know, on the one hand, you're like a young person and more adaptable and that might not appeal to everyone but is also like potentially very appealing to someone who wants to go see the world and live in another place for a while and experience another culture and another baseball culture so i could see it being you know something that was either intimidating or enticing in turn depending on the individual player and you know there is obviously some risk involved in this like he could he could be bad, he could get hurt, he could do any number of things that would prevent him from kind of cashing in on a bigger deal once he turns 25 and is eligible to sign with whomever he wants. But it does suggest that, you know, even though the the sort of range of potential options outside of the draft are somewhat limited, that they do exist. And if it ends up being a lucrative one for him, I think you're right that there are going to be guys who look around and maybe think that they could do better if they are going to go play overseas for a little while and then come back when they're able to pick their employer. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting bit of business here. Yep. All right. The last thing I have is a, a quick stat blast that was prompted by a game this weekend. I will play the song. This is a question from Matt O'Gorman, Patreon supporter, and he says, Watching the Twins, or really the Otani Trout Angels, and noticed Mitch Garver batting leadoff. It's got to be pretty rare to have a catcher batting leadoff, no? Similar to the Otani batting second conversation from last week, have you guys looked at the rarest spot at each position in the lineup before? My gut is catcher at leadoff is the rarest position lineup order combo, excluding pitcher. Maybe first baseman ninth spot is pretty rare as well. And no, I don't think that we had looked into this or talked about this before. So I sent this question to frequent StatPlast consultant Adam Ott and his handy RetroSheet database, and he got back to me very quickly with not only a list of the lineup position and field position combos sorted by how common they are, but also a handy-dandy chart with uh, red and blue color coding that shows how common everything is. So I'm just going to, if you don't mind, I'll I'll give you a little quiz here. Sam sometimes oh. put me on the spot with these quizzes, oh, and no. I always got flustered. But I think uh, listeners enjoyed me being flustered. I don't know if they'll enjoy you being flustered. But this one is uh, probably less prone to causing flustering than some, I think, this will uh, be more or less in your wheelhouse here. So, and that oh, increases no, the no. pressure even more. Yeah, what am <laughs> no. I doing really badly no. now? Oh, no, this no. one, no, it, it won't be too bad. So, I, I just want to ask you what you would guess the most common 
lineup spot is for each position for each uh, position in the field. So, okay. you know, basically where you think they tend to hit in the order. And Adam gave me the data from 1900 to 2020. He also gave me the data just for 2015 to 2020 because I was curious whether it would be significantly different. And it wasn't really, but I will link to both. He even made a GIF of season by season so you can see how it changes and it doesn't actually change that much. But uh, so <laughs> let's start with catcher. Where would you guess the uh, the most common spot for a catcher to hit is? Seventh. Eighth. Okay, so I was close. Yeah, seventh okay. is uh, second most common, though. Yes. Okay, okay, so, okay. Yeah, you're in the ballpark. I'm in you're the ballpark. Be in the yeah. ballpark here. You understand the positional spectrum. Do so, I? <laughs> We're going to find out. <laughs> First base. <laughs> Third. Fourth. Okay, fine. Yeah, cleanup spot is the most common. Fifth is second most common, and then okay. third is third most common. Okay. I feel so mean. I've been on the opposite <sighs> end of this treatment, and now the tormented has become the tormentor. All right, second base. Third. Second base, the most common spot is second, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. This one probably is uh, one of the more confusing ones because you, you do get a lot of second basemen hitting at the top of the order. You also get some second basemen hitting toward the bottom of the order. It can go either way. And yeah, it's actually second spot in the order is where it's been the most common. And that, you know, I think probably dates back a little bit to old ways of constructing lineups right. where you want the, the bat control, the hit and run guy, yeah. the person who puts it in play, you know, that could be a second baseman. So I think these days it is most common for the second baseman to actually be the leadoff hitter lately. But uh, Lately, but, that is true. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, okay, third base. Third base. This, is, yeah, this one is kind of a mess. Fifth. It's uh, sixth. Sixth. Ah. Yeah, but fifth is right there. There's not really a clear trend with this one. Some of them, like, you see a, a clear, like, bimodal distribution, sure. or it's like, you know, yeah, first basemen tend to hit cleanup. Third baseman, they're, they're kind of all over the place, but sixth is most common. Okay, shortstop. First. Shortstop, first is fairly common, but it's actually eighth. Really? Eighth. Yeah. Wait, I like, thought catcher like was catcher. eighth. Uh, catcher is eighth also. They are both eighth. Uh, well, yeah, it is, ben, <laughs> it is <laughs> you scam. Eighth is the most common spot for, for both of those positions. But That's it's, very uh, funny. Yeah. For, for catchers, the ace spot is like 41% of games. The catcher is hitting eighth. For shortstops, it's only like 24%. Oh, so it's more oh. evenly distributed. But so you don't tend to get like shortstops hitting third or fifth. That's like four percent right that but, makes sense yeah although thinking, like, you know speak, lately speak. that also may be slightly different because you've got shortstop sitting better than ever okay yeah, it's it's i think this one probably has shifted pretty dramatically yeah. at least in the last 10 years five years left field fifth fourth <laughs> i'm like you're right on it. Yeah. I hate this yeah. exercise. Yeah, it's uh, it, it goes feel like fourth, dummy. third, fifth, but you're in the right region here. Okay. okay. Center field. Ninth. Well, how do we deal with pitchers in this? <laughs> pitchers, I guess this is uh, pitchers count toward okay. this. They yeah. definitely go ninth, Ben. 
they go first. <laughs> the pitchers? No, center field. Oh, okay. I was yeah. like, hold yeah. on. I yeah. think that I have misunderstood baseball <laughs> yeah. for my, I mean, like often. Adam didn't even look up their batting. Because uh, I think we could But yeah, okay. Yeah. Center field at first makes sense. Despite Tony Russo's best efforts to bat pitchers. Because they're fast. Yeah. Uh, they're but fast. yes, center field. Yeah. It's actually 28% of games is uh, the leadoff hitter. All right. All right. Right field. <laughs> Fifth. Third. <laughs> but very close. Like three percent. I think you're giving apart. me more credit than I am due. <laughs> I feel really like a dummy now. Last is DH. Third. Cleanup. <laughs> but so close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh, you're just like one spot off on most of these. You've got the right pattern here. So yeah. it fits what you would think. So so the least common combos here. Uh, Adam gave me a long list. I will put this online for anyone who wants to peruse it. But the questioner, Matt, his instincts were right on point, actually. Catcher batting leadoff is the rarest combination, not counting uh, pitchers. You know, pitchers batting sure. leadoff would be rare. But uh, but catchers batting leadoff is the rarest of all. Catchers have led off in 0.27% of catcher games. They've batted eighth in 41.4%, which is on the other end of the scale, the most common lineup position, field position combo. And Matt's instincts were also correct in that first baseman batting ninth is second least frequent. Yeah. And after that, it is DH's batting ninth. Very rare also. Right fielders batting ninth. Left fielders batting ninth. Catchers batting second. Sure. Third baseman batting ninth. Catchers batting third. So I, I don't need to keep going. Probably it's uh, pretty predictable that the positions with the lowest defensive bars tend to hit in the middle of the order. So it's rare for them to hit ninth or something. And for catchers, it's rare for them to hit right in the heart of the order as well. So not confusing, but interesting. So I will put Adam's various graphics and spreadsheets online for anyone who wants to check this out. Thank you to Adam for the research. Thanks to Matt for the question. And apologies to you for subjecting you to a pop quiz. On a day when I'm still vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, you can chalk it up to second dose. Yeah, but I did spell Cincinnati right on the first try today, so I don't know if I can use that as an excuse. I might have gotten <laughs> crazy superpowers from the vaccine. <laughs> Do you have any most common misspellings? Is is that what it is for you? Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati I'm pretty good I, at Cincinnati, actually, but I have my bugaboos. I get Cincinnati wrong very often. I don't know why. Everyone struggles with lieutenant, so that seems... Hmm. Trivial to mention. You know the word that I've noticed gets misspelled the most often in copy? What? Is minuscule. Oh, yeah. People spell minuscule incorrectly a lot. Yeah, because it it sounds like an I there. It doesn't sound like minus. It sounds like minus, right? Yeah, so So people get it it wrong a lot. That one is a thing that people are often jammed up by. But yeah, Cincinnati, I'm not a very good speller, actually. I'm a a bad speller in a way that is, that was always like surprising to my mother considering how much I read. Like yeah. <laughs> she, she just assumed, cause it's like, you know, you pick up, you pick up all kinds of stuff when you, you know, you learn all sorts of stuff from reading. Uh, <laughs> but when you read a lot, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing words more often. This makes sense when I'm saying it yeah. does. Yeah. I think I'm a, a decent speller. I'm, I'm not a good, good at some like long ones, uh, especially like baseball names. I'm pretty good at ones that are supposed to be hard, like a 
Dudman Kavich or something. I always oh, sure. I had that one down. I think Soldier gets typoed all the time. I see Solider constantly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I guess it's just the way you type. But I think a tough one for me, weirdly, is Anomaly. I have oh, a tough one. I have a tough time with anonymous, oh, <laughs> even with pronouncing <laughs> it. Apparently, that's kind of my Achilles heel spelling wise. You know what word I I often misspell in a way that is um, pretty embarrassing for someone who runs an analytics website? Experiment. <laughs> oh, huh. yeah. I put a I put an I where the e is. Well, oh, there are several well, e's in experiment. You, you pronounced it that way, sort of. Experiment. Yeah. 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 Huh. I think this might be a Seattle thing. But anyway, I spell that incorrectly. I do like it when our WordPress uh, will say that a word has been incorrectly spelled, but then it doesn't have a guess. But it's like a very easy word. Like someone has, you know, fat fingered like there and added an extra E <laughs> on the end. And and WordPress spell check is like, I have no idea what this is. And it's like, you need to try harder. We're all <laughs> doing our best. And I don't yeah. think you are. So well, anyway. You always remember to capitalize the G in fan graphs. I know That's that right. about you. Camel case, very important. (laughs) All right. Well, we will end there, and I will go hopefully enjoy Shohei Otani pitching. And if it is not enjoyable and you know that as you are listening to that, please do not rub it in. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. After we recorded, the Yankees beat the Braves, so they're 6-10. and 10. The comeback begins. Mike Trout hit his hardest tracked home run of the StatCast era. His slash line is now up to 385, 508, 769. Not too shabby. And Shohei Otani did, in fact, make his return. Angels beat writer Rhett Bollinger wrote, It was a successful, albeit wild, return to the mound for two-way star Shohei Otani. One could call it effectively wild. He threw four scores innings, struck out seven, so far so good, also walked six and hit a batter, not so good. The control clearly wasn't there, he himself gave his control a zero out of 100, but this was his first outing back from the blister issues, he backed off his fastball because that was the pitch that was exacerbating the blister, and he took a little off it, so you could focus on the control and command not being there, or you could focus on the fact that he missed a bunch of bats and held a team scoreless, granted the Rangers, without using his best stuff. Anyway, nice to see him back out there, and nice to hear that the blister didn't bother him. Let's hope his command improves as he gets more work. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Sean Hurley, Steve Booten, Robert Rymanis, Tosca Saltz, and Jacob Kramer Duffield. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastatvangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and we will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. That's